everyone to the Maple Leaf Hangout. My name is Michael Langlois. I'm here this evening, uh, Thursday night, uh, the 30th of October 2014, as we go live with Anthony Petrielli, longtime uh, voice, tremendous writer with the Maple Leaf Hot Stove site uh, itself. Uh, I'm part of Vintage Leaf Memories, which has been around now for just over five years, and it's, uh, it's great to be back for, uh, let's call it season two, Anthony. But episode one, we did 30-some episodes last season following the Leafs uh, into a, 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 an element of despair by the end of the 2013-14 and, and, uh, uh, season. But we're, we're in the midst already. We're, we're not quite 10 games in, but we're pretty darn close, right, Anthony, to 10 games into the new season. And before we bring our guest on, one quick question. I will trick you with one thing. Uh, what has surprised you most or least about the, the start for the Leafs this season? most in terms of I just I thought he'd start uh, Bozak and Kessel around the point per game and uh, I think last I checked he has like five or six points he hasn't been bad I just I don't think he's been in the impact player I thought he'd be even on both ends of the ice. Which, just because our listeners had cut out a little bit for me, and this is the, the, the elusive, fragile nature of technology on the Hangout sometimes, Anthony, but you were saying, which one of the, we're talking about Kessel, Bozak, who are you saying was has been okay, but not quite what you were thinking? James Van Riemsdyk. Or Van, J JVR, okay. Like, he's, you say he's been fine, but maybe not quite the dynamic sort of force he was through much of last year? No. Yeah, you're, yes, that's what I'm saying, and, and just... Uh, like Lupul doesn't have the points, but I think he's been a lot more noticeable and, and a better player, frankly, thus far. Well, and we're looking at a, at a shift, right? This week in, in practice, I guess we'll see the, the fruits of that or not against Columbus on Friday night and Chicago Saturday night. But but it sounds like Carlisle was moving lines around this week to try to create, quote-unquote, better balance. So I guess we'll see if that works or not, right? Exactly. So listen, let's introduce uh, Rob Volman, who is truly uh, one of the pioneers, Anthony, of the of the hockey analytics community. And I'm sure Rob, who's based in Calgary, will tell us if if uh, if I miss anything. But he is he's known. He's written for for ESPN, a number of publications. He knows the analytics side of hockey inside out, and of course is certainly well known as the author of Hockey Abstract. Um, Rob, first of all. Thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. We look forward to your insights, and it's great of you to, t to, uh, to be here and join us on the Maple Leaf Hangout. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Quick question, though. Are you any relation to old Montreal legend Charlie Langlois from the, from the 20s? No, uh, I am not, and not also of, uh, because I would not, to be totally honest, I would not even be aware of Charlie Langlois. I know of Albert Jr. Langlois, who of course played with Montreal and won some cups in the 50s with them, but we, I've heard, and he later played with the Red Wings and, and the Rangers and the Bruins, Jr. Langlois in the 60s, I've heard that our family may be may have been distantly related to Junior Langlois, but no, I have no. We're, we weren't a Quebec Langlois family. Maybe going back many generations, but so I don't think there's any reference to. But thank you for that. Um, if if he was famous back then, I I should have just said yes. He was my uh, you know great great uncle or something, and uh, and I got my my athletic skill from him. But no, I don't think there's any relation there. 
but thank you for joining us and thank you for raising that. At least my last name meant intriguing with you, which is great. So, Anthony, listen, we have Rob with us, and, and he's been kind enough to, to give his time tonight. Um, Anthony, I'll let you sort of ask, because you're more, I don't want to say you're more, Anthony, of an anal analytics guy, but you certainly have a better sense than I do to chat with Rob from that perspective. So do you want to bounce a couple of questions off him, and I'll, I'll chime in with some of my more layman's observations and thoughts that he could maybe respond to about the Leafs and, and uh, the NHL across the board? Uh, yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, seeing at uh, the 10 game mark, uh, a good place to start would be how big of a sample size are you looking for before you start actually, you know, making decisions and I don't want to say coming to conclusions on players, but starting to feel comfortable with your analysis and what you're seeing. Well, I think it, uh, I think it depends on what exactly I'm looking at. Uh, when it comes to team-based analysis, you have a lot more data, uh, whereas uh, when you're looking at an individual player, of course, you don't have as many events. So in the case of uh, team-level analysis, sometimes uh, a full season's worth of data can, be, uh, can paint a pretty accurate picture of a team and its various strengths and weaknesses. But when it comes to individual players, you might notice in my books, I always quote about a three-year spread, whether it's a, a skater, whether it's a goalie, because I find it virtually impossible to really reach any meaningful conclusions within a full 82 games when you're dealing with individuals. But when it comes to teams, I, uh, I generally get confident a lot faster. So what are, so early on, I mean, are, you were saying before we went on the air tonight that, that Rob, that, that, I mean, the Leafs, you follow the entire league. So you have expertise across the board. Um, do you have, just by the way, this is a totally non-analytic, were you raised a, a big-time hockey fan? You're based in Calgary now. Are you a Western guy? Were you a fan of, of certain NHL teams? Or was this something that you just sort of migrated to because you love stats and you picked hockey as a, as a sport that didn't have this kind of in-depth analysis from a, from a statistical standpoint? Yeah, I was born and raised in Ottawa. And uh, this was obviously long before they had a team. And so uh, you generally had to choose your own favorite team and most people in Ottawa, they wouldn't cheer for the Leafs and they wouldn't cheer for the Habs because of that sort of rivalry thing. So right. you actually had to choose a team that was completely outside that. And generally, you chose a team in the East because the teams in the West, you, didn't, you weren't up late enough to actually watch them play. And so, uh, you know, my brother, for instance, he was a big Islanders fan because that was during their heyday when they won all those cups. Oh, of course, and yes. Guess, and I guess when I was a kid, I gravitated a little bit more towards the Flyers. Uh, you know, Bobby Clark was, uh, I really enjoyed watching Bobby Clark. He was a big reason why I cheered for the Flyers. Uh, but that's just when I was a little kid. As I've grown up, you know, different times, there'll be different teams that appeal to me. You know, more recently, for instance, uh, I've really enjoyed watching teams like Chicago. Uh, in the 90s, I was a big fan of watching the Red Wings. So really, it's, uh, it really comes down to which team is putting the exciting product on the ice. Because let's be honest, no matter which team you cheer for, they're full of Canadians. They're full of people from Ottawa or Ontario or Canada. So, uh, you know, it almost, in my view, it almost doesn't matter which team you're cheering for, from at least from that perspective. 
Okay, a question, and then Anthony, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to come in with more stuff that, that a lot of our listeners probably want to hear about, but I'm an old-time hockey guy, Rob, so you mentioned Bobby Clark, of course, which is in my wheelhouse. For me, probably the hardest working player I've ever seen, because um, he just seemed to play hard on every shift. He was a nasty piece of work, couldn't stand the guy, but what a wonderful, if he was on your team, anybody remotely in the current era, when I say, I don't mean stylistically, but Anybody in this era play as hard as Bobby Clark played every shift, every night that you see? Well, you know, hockey analytics, as you know, is my specialty. And that's, that's one of those things that you can't really put on a spreadsheet. Obviously, you can't really find a Bobby Clark or quantify the, the grit and the heart of, of a, and a hard worker like Bobby Clark. But what I can say is that Bobby Clark, one of the reasons he was so valuable to the Flyers is he played big minutes. He played it against the top lines. Uh, he played it in both zones, power play, penalty kill, when protecting a lead, when chasing a lead. He played big minutes in every single situation. So in that regard, uh, you know, you have guys like Pavel Datsuk is a, is a sort yes. of more famous one, but guys like, say, Patrice Bergeron, Jonathan Taves, even Sidney Crosby. These are guys who played big minutes in all situations against top opponents in both zones, no matter what you're doing. And, and that's a style that's very rem reminiscent of Bobby Clark. Now, whether they have the same hard, uh, heart and the same hard work, that's not something I can really put on a spreadsheet. But I think when you watch the games, you'll agree that uh, those, those are the right types of players when you're, when you're talking about Bobby Clark. Well, and you mentioned heart and grit, and, and I think some people in the analytics, analytics community are probably criticizing too much of sort of tech heads. But you just mentioned grit and heart, and I think a lot of people in your field still respect the fact that to be a great player in any sport and I've heard I've heard people in in baseball and football talk about the very thing you just said about and like, statistics are important well interpreted they can be very important and useful but you still you still gotta trust your eyes when you're assessing a player too and you also have to recognize that grit determination heart all they actually do matter they matter on the ice they matter on the playing field they matter to coaches and stuff so would you agree with that as an analytics guy Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, I've always said that, you know, the front offices that aren't using analytics and refuse to use analytics, I think they're walking around like this with one eye being covered. Yes. But by the same token, people that walk around only looking at analytics, well, they're just covering the other eye. I mean, I don't really think one approach is necessarily more advisable than the other. Use both eyes. And, and not just, and also it's more than just two things. It's more than just traditional analysis and analytics. There's also things like Hello? Gentlemen, are we back? Anthony, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep. 
Great. So maybe so we're back. Is, is Rob back? I was just going to say, Rob, can I tee it up again for you? I think we're back. Okay. Can I, can I tee it up? You were just about to make a great point. You used your, you know, covering one eye, the other eye analogy, and it's not. And you said it's not just those two things. And then, you know, our our uh, technical world seemed to freeze on us for a moment, but that's okay. Uh, one of the beauties of this is is this can probably be parsed together or pieced together. And and when people listen on or watch, listen on replay, it's not an issue. So can you pick it up sort of from that point? From it's not just one or the other, and and sort of uh, build from there. Well, sure. I mean, there's this false dichotomy that uh, you know it's just traditional analysis versus hockey analytics, but there's a lot more to it than just. There's it's not a two-sided coin. Sure. I mean, you've got equipment managers that have insights into the skates and the sticks and the equipment being used. You've got physical conditioning experts and trainers that are talking about the different aspects that flexibility and speed and, and, the, and the conditioning and the strength and how that can impact, impact a player's performance or a team's performance. There's also the locker room stuff you hear a lot about, about you know, the different personalities and, and you know, which players fit better with one another and work together as a team. My point is, there's a lot of different aspects to scouting a player and to conducting analysis of a team. And analytics is just one of them. And that's why, you know, I always try to, when I'm presenting a hockey analytics argument, I always try to show how it fits in to everything else uh, rather than just presenting it on its own in a vacuum. And I think you'll agree that that's a far more effective way of, of presenting hockey analytics. Uh, would you agree with that? I, I do personally, Rob, and I also my my sense is um, uh, that in my own background, I've worked with a number of NHL coaches professionally in my field, and I would think that they would probably that would resonate with with them, even some of the so-called old school guys, as long as there is a fit or a connection there, and it's not some abstract, um, you know, simply. To, like like it's got to fit somewhere, right? And what you're talking about, it makes perfect sense that this is another uh, w sort of added value way. It, I'm not I'm expressing it properly, but I think you know what I'm saying. It just adds value to the organization and it adds a level of expertise, assessment, analysis that that fits in with the more call it conventional, traditional modes of assessing players and teams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. This whole argument you have about, you know, your stack guy over here and your traditional analysis over here, and he's saying, hey, watch the game, dummy. I mean, that, that's such a false argument. I mean, if an if a equipment manager came in and said, hey, I've got a brand new stick, i got a brand new skate, does the guy say, hey, watch the game, dummy? I mean, no. I mean, yeah. analytics. They work together. Yeah, they work together. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a way to work together. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to be excited. Right, it would be silly for a hockey team to, to, to enter a season without an equipment manager or without a trainer. And likewise, I think it's silly for a hockey team to start a season without a guy that does analytics. Well, and I think you, you've seen, and, and you're probably one of the reasons why, but more and more teams are actually hiring full-time guys, people, who have that kind of expertise. Anthony, sorry, with all the technical uh, uh, challenges, I, I want you to jump in. I didn't want to, because as I said, I'm not, I'm not an analytics guru like, like, uh, like Rob, and, and I'm sure you've got more compelling questions from that perspective, Anthony, so please jump in. One of the things I know, Rob, because you read it recently, Bill Posnaski 
wrote an article to James, uh, I want to say this week, but sometime recently, um, and in there, Bill James actually says he doesn't like seeing when analytic people uh, or people who you know practice them put down grit or clutch or leadership. And uh, the example they gave in the article, because Bill James actually works for the Red Sox, is uh, you know, uh, David Ortiz saying you know he's watched it too many times now. I don't know if we're quantifying it properly, but he's seen it so many times, like how can it not exist? Because this guy's just done it time and time again. Um, so it was interesting to, to hear you say the same thing, because you know, we get it a lot on Twitter. Uh, you'll have people you know, put leadership in quotation marks or grit in quotation marks as if they're complete things that, that don't exist. What do you think is our next step in properly measuring this stuff? And, and kind of getting that stuff into the conversation maybe a bit more of a quantifiable way than it is now. You're not going to measure. You're not going to measure clutch play and grit on a spreadsheet. Um, you have to use a tool for what it is. It's you know my books are just as much about the limitations of analytics as they are about the applications. They're just as much about how not to apply analytics as they are about demonstrations about how to use it. And I'll give you one example when it comes to clutch play. You mentioned David Ortiz in baseball. Well, in hockey, let's say Marc Messier. Uh, everyone would agree Marc Messier, a fantastic clutch player. Everyone would agree with that now. But if you went back to the 1970s and you said, hey, we're going to get this guy named Marc Messier because he's a great clutch player, how would you have known before he did all the things that he did, how would you have known that he was a great clutch player? I mean, like with a spreadsheet at least, or even from watching the games, it's hard to tell. It's only after the fact that we know he's a great clutch player, which isn't terribly useful. I mean, it's not like you can sign Mark Messier now for a Stanley Cup run. It's so, not predictive. It's not predictive is what you're saying in that yeah, sense. Yeah, at least not in a spreadsheet. And so I no. think the problem is, I mean, if you were to define clutch play, right, either your definition would be so small, like overtime games, Stanley Cup games, Either definition would be so small that random variation would make your study meaningless, or it would be so large that you know you're no longer measuring clutch play. You're just taking a, a snapshot of a, a guy's regular game. So there's really no way to tell who a clutch player is until after the fact. And uh, you know, so that's one area where analytics just won't help you. If you want to know who the clutch players are, you're going to have to get into the dressing room. You're going to have to ask fellow players. You're going to have to ask guys that have watched 5,000 games, and, and you're not going to be able to talk to a, a guy with a spreadsheet to get that answer, and you shouldn't try. Now, yeah, I agree with you, and I kind of look back at, like, Jordan Eberle and people talking about, like, this guy was clutch in the World Juniors. Was he clutch, or was he just a lot more talented than a lot of guys, and he had the one great bounce? When it comes to leadership, though, I, I don't know if I would call it analytics, but I think some smart teams are starting to get into studying a bit more of the psychology, the right questions, getting uh, you know psychiatrists involved and whatnot. And I don't know if it's crossed over into hockey as much yet, but I know as a football guy, I, I'm been a long time Seattle Seahawks fan, and reading into some of the stuff that they've been doing drafting wise 
is they really put guys through the grader with their team psychiatrists trying to, you know, get that little bit extra edge, trying to find whatever it is that they're doing. They don't tell much. They don't tell us much about it, obviously, but um, I do think there's an advantage there. I wouldn't call it a stat sheet, uh, you know, a spreadsheet advantage, but I think whatever you want to call that, there's something there to uh, leadership, however you want to phrase it. Um, in that book, in that article as well, uh, one of the things Poznaski and, and James talk about was when he started the whole hockey, or baseball abstract thing was one of his main motivations was cutting through the BS, the you know, as he puts it, the, the BS narratives we see in sports, um, you know, and he gives examples of, you know, announcers talking about very limited sample sizes, uh, you know, the last time this guy hit this, hit against this pitcher, he hit a home run, and Bill James saying, like, this means nothing. What are some of the sort of BS narratives you'd like to see out of hockey mainstream media, just completely gone? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, I think a lot of times, well, a little hobby horse of mine, it's not really stats, but one of the little pet peeves of mine is whenever you hear an announcer say that a goalie had no chance on a shot, that's always bugged me. I mean, he was out there, he had his pads on, <laughs> he had a chance. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess the, statistically, if you want me to get to statistics, I guess the idea is that people, re people tend to put too much stock on things that are really random fluctuations. I mean, if you've played the game yourself, you know that some nights you can take five or six excellent shots, well-aimed, executed shots, and they just miss the net. They hit the post. The goalie makes a big save. Other nights you're playing like garbage, and you're throwing a, just a nothing shot at the net, and it goes in. And the problem is people try to build narratives around that sort of silliness. They try to build – they put too much stock into, you know, the lucky bounces. Like, I'm not saying hockey's a lucky game. It's a skill-based game. But you know, come on, you know that there's bounces all the time, and people put too much stock on those lucky bounces. So I guess if there's really narratives I like to destroy, it's any narrative that's based on, like, this, these, these lucky bounces that occur. Like, a good example right now is um, maybe a controversial one, but I'll throw this out here. Nathan McKinnon, uh, you know, he's not scoring, and also at the end of the regular season last year he didn't score. And everyone's building this big narrative about the guy. Well, the fact of the matter is Nathan McKinnon's one of the fastest skaters in the league. He's one of the most skilled players in the league. And if you're watching the Colorado Avalanche play, he's playing amazingly well. He's taking the shots. He's getting into position. Colorado's is at their best when Nathan McKinnon's on the ice. And so the fact that he's only scoring on 2% of his shots over the last 30 games, I think it is, you know, that's not going to last. I mean, Paul Bissonnette scores on 7%. So I'm pretty sure Nathan McKinnon is going to pull it up. This isn't going to last. This is just one of the ups and downs that occurs with all these players. But they build this narrative like there's something wrong with Nathan McKinnon. There's nothing wrong with Nathan McKinnon. I'll go on record right now as saying he's going to have an amazing career. He's going to battle for the Art Ross at some points in his career. He's going to lead the avalanche in scoring at some points in his career. He's an amazing athlete, an amazing player. And if you're watching the game, you can tell that he's still taking the shots. He's still doing well. And you can't build a narrative out of just a few bad bounces a few goalposts. Uh, what I'd do you like, think about that? I, I, Anthony, I think that's a great question, and it's Michael, and if I can jump in, Rob, based on uh, what you just said and what I thought was a superb question from Anthony, 
uh, because it was something I was thinking about just as you guys were chatting. The you you actually raised Rob the very thing I was going to talk about, and again from a layman's perspective, but having watched the game for for well over 50 years now, there are times that you see like the star of the game, the guy who scored two goals, but basically did nothing all night long. Was not good defensively. Didn't you know? I don't have to go through the whole litany of of knots. But you know, two shots went in, and and it, the same shot the next night hits the and the same guy who's you just said whether it's Nathan McKinnon or a number of other guys who play superbly, and they and everything is the same except this particular night or for three or four games or five the puck doesn't go in it hits the post it goes an inch wide does that mean that guy's playing poorly? I don't think so. I look at that same way in basketball. I know that putting the puck in the net is yes, of course, part of. Ultimately, if somebody never puts the puck in the net, it's an issue. And if they never score a basket, of course, it's an issue. But you know, there are guys that play a basketball game. They play a tremendous game because in terms of effort, vision, passing, rebound, all that. But if the ball's not going in some night, and it's like, oh, they had an off night. Well, they maybe had a night where the ball didn't go in, but it doesn't mean they played badly. And I've often, I've always looked at hockey the same way, and I'm always flummoxed when I see people just gravitate to it's like, what's the easiest way to pick the best players tonight? Who got two goals? Or who got assists? I mean, you can be a, a hor like you can score two goals as a defenseman, but if you've had a horrible night in your own zone, you should never be the star of a game. You know. Anyway, I, so I'm I'm kind of building on what you're saying. I think you picked on a perfect point to illustrate it's not just statistics; it's a combination of of what you're seeing and and all the other stuff that that, that people with your expertise bring to assessment. Yeah, the analytics the analytics can help you here because they can tell you. On a game by game, or month by month, or year by year basis, they can tell you whether a team has the puck when a certain player is on the ice. Yes. They can tell you whether that player is getting into position, helping the team drive possession. Now, you can't always get the goals. It's not always going to go in. That's to an, to an extent, some of that is outside your control. But doing your job and helping drive possession and getting the puck and getting into position and denying those that to your opponents, that's not, a, that's not luck. That's something that you do because it's skill, and you do it game after game, year after year. It doesn't change that much. And that's what analytics can bring. They can actually sort of remove the, the luck-based portion and show you the skill-based portion. And it's at its best when you can see it together. Now, not to come too close to home, but last year's Toronto Maple Leafs were a good example. Now, early in the season, the analytics guys, like me, said, according to our numbers, the Leafs never have the puck. They're down there with Buffalo. They, they're getting outshot, outplayed. They're playing the entire game in their own zone. They never have the puck, according to our numbers. And that's not going to last. Yeah. At first, people were skeptical about that. And they were saying, well, that's the style they have. You know, they're keeping the shots to the outside. And when they have the puck, they're taking higher quality chances. And we said, that's not what's happening. And then as more time went by, you know, you could start to see with your own eyes. You know, you're right. They are getting outplayed. They're out getting shot. They're just getting a few lucky bounces. And you're right. It probably won't last. And that's why this year, when we were making those same warnings about the Colorado Avalanche, I was actually surprised to find no skepticism. Everybody was sort of saying, yeah, the Colorado Avalanche did quite poorly against the Minnesota Wild in the playoffs last year. They got badly outplayed. Guys like Danny Heatley were making them look like an AHL team. They were really struggling. Maybe that was a lucky year. Maybe they're not there. And uh, that's why it wasn't just the analytics guys that were saying, hey, Colorado's not a playoff team. Even the mainstream guys were talking about how Colorado wasn't a maybe 
an 100-point division champion and maybe more of a bubble team. So that's something I think analytics brings to the table. I think that's one of the, you know, the narratives that analytics has helped destroying, this whole idea that you can somehow consistently keep shots to the outside. And, and, and I think that's, uh, you can check whether those things are true or not. And that's one thing I love about analytics. I remember a few years ago, George LaRock said that a lot of NHL players were on steroids. And the way to prove that was to look at players that were in the Olympics and look at their performance before and after the Olympics when they had to get clean of steroids. And, and there's going to be a difference. And so we said, okay, we'll look at that. And we did a study, and there was no difference. Now, I'm not saying that means there's no steroids, but what I'm saying is we took something that someone said and we were able to look at whether it's true or not. And that's really the two best purposes of analytics is one is to either confirm or deny what you think you're seeing with your eyes, and number two, to try to find things that maybe you've missed that deserve a closer look. Anthony? Uh, you know what, it's funny that you said all that. Um, I have a good question coming up on that and, and your book. I uh, just wanted to make a quick point first when we're talking about sort of BS narratives. I think there's a bit of a problem kind of just focusing in on stars and, and just blaming stars for all your problems. Wait, uh, you know, and, and no focus on the depth or the rest of the roster. And, you know, I look at like Ovechkin, I saw the Sportsnet panel saying like, this guy's a coach killer. And they kind of went through the list and they're saying, like, this has to be his last chance before he's gone out of there. And then you kind of, you know, they didn't, but you go through the, the list of coaches that he's had. You know, Glenn Hanlon, is he coaching in the league anymore? No. Adam Oates, is anyone lining up to hire this guy to be their head coach anymore? No. Bruce Boudreaux, who is a good coach, and they were a very good team under him. So I think, you know, we're talking about BS narratives, and I think one of them is really we just kind of focus in on the star players and not the rest of the roster, and... Uh, you get a good example right now of Phil Kessel. The Leafs lose a game and he doesn't score, and people, you know, that's the first thing. They go to the roster and go, well, what's wrong? Kessel didn't score tonight. And you can look at Anaheim when, when they were a struggling team, and, you know, no one was saying Getzlaff and Perry were the, were the problem, and now all of a sudden they have some depth and some good players, and all of a sudden they're a good team again. And, and you know, it's like it's crazy, but it's not. Um, in terms of the point you were making, though, in your book, in Hockey Abstract for the Leafs, you wrote that neither the stats guys or the old school guys won. Can you explain that? Because not everyone has that, that mind frame. Well, you know, there were, I mean, okay, so victory for the mainstream traditional, hey, watch the game, dummy, victory for them would have been another playoff appearance. I mean, if the Maple Leafs had made the playoffs, especially in decisive fashion, then it would have been a big STFU to, to the, all the hockey analytics guys. And I wouldn't have been upset by that. I would have, been, I would have loved it. I would have been like, great. I've actually got now, finally, after all these years, I've got a team that was, you know, that looked a certain way on paper and yet still somehow managed to win. And I've never had an example like that before. Now I've got one. I can study it. I can learn something. I can advance my knowledge. I was actually hoping that uh, the Leafs were going to be great because then – there's a new discovery. There's a new something new we can capture. And so that's what victory would have looked like, I think, for the traditional mainstream crowd. Now, victory for the hockey analytics crowd would be for the Leafs to go immediately to the basement and stay there all year. And, and instead, the Leafs actually were one of the league's you know, stronger teams for about 100 games, if you go back and include the, the 2013 season, right? 
So if the analytics had absolutely nailed it, then how did the Leafs manage to be successful for you know close to 100 games before things caught up to them? And uh, so I don't think either side really had, you know, I think a perfect picture by themselves as to what was going on. And it's a good example about how you have to use them both together because it's really only together uh, that uh, I think you start getting an accurate picture of, uh, of the Leafs of the last couple of years. So are you reasonably, uh, uh, not that you're not a Leaf fan, but but would you then, based on you know what Anthony was just uh, talking about, um, Rob, would you be very comfortable then with the idea of what the Leafs are doing? Like they, they've got a Shanahan who clearly is a is an innovative thinker, but he's he was certainly an you know a, a grit and heart and skilled player. Uh, they've got Dave Nonis, who a lot of his critics say he did, didn't embrace analytics, but now Kyle Dubas, the young guy from from the Sioux Greyhounds, is as GM there is in. Maybe this you know some people are saying they are going to butt heads to some of your earlier analogies. This isn't going to work. You know, watch the game versus all stats, but it probably neither is as extreme as 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 the, the critics and the fans are, are thinking. It may well be that there is, whether it's those two or but some combination, they can actually work very well together. Is that what you would surmise? Absolutely. I think that uh, to be successful, you need to approach things from all the angles. You need to have the hockey traditional experts and scouts. You need to have the analytics guys. You need to have the trainers. You need to have the, uh, the equipment managers. You need to even have the, the psychologists that, uh, that Anthony was mentioning earlier. Uh, you need to have everything. And, and that's why I really applaud the Maple Leafs for building themselves an analytics team. Uh, it was not just Kyle Dubas, but they also got uh, Daryl Metcalf, who uh, built the Extra Skater website. So he's an expert in, in how to get the data and present the data. They also got uh, Rob Pettipis, uh, who was uh, another analyst, I guess you could say, um, there, they got Cam Sharon, who, who knows how to convert the analytics into actionable items. And, and so I really like the way they constructed that analytics team. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, it's a decent model. And, and uh, that's why a lot of teams, I've noticed, I think there's about nine or ten, uh, I guess you could say, outsiders. So people like me that have never worked professionally with an organization, they, 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 they cut their teeth. They might have done a contract here and there, but basically they're independent, they're outsiders. And like, so Kyle Dubas doesn't count, but the others do. And so there's about nine or 10 of those outsiders that were hired across the league in New Jersey, in Florida, in Edmonton, and, uh, and uh, Washington actually had a great one as well. They picked up Vic Ferrari, or his real name is Tim Barnes, sorry. We call him Vic. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting that all these outsiders are getting hired. And um, furthermore, it's not just the fact that these outsiders are getting hired. It's more that, you know, the teams are sort of being public and being forward with it uh, as opposed to being secretive about it. In the past, I mean, a lot of these people have worked for NHL teams. Uh, not these particular people, but guys like Gabriel Desjardins, for instance. And teams never admitted it. They never talked publicly about it. The times I've worked with NHL teams, I, I couldn't breathe a word about it, and um, and still can't to this day. Discretion is critical. They don't want anyone to know that they're doing this stuff. And just one one quick pop though about how much I really enjoy all these guys being hired. Of these nine guys that were hired, all but two of them were actually featured in my hockey abstract book. 
So it's not just random outsiders. It truly is the cream of the crop that is being picked up around the league. And Toronto's lucky because a lot of great analysts are right there in Toronto, whereas other teams actually have to sort of bring people in from other cities. And, uh, and that's one reason why, this brings me to my second point, I know this is long-winded, but I look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, I also like what they did in the offseason. They went off the board to pick up guys like, they brought Leo Komarov and, and, um, and uh, what's the other guy? Santorelli, uh, they've yeah, got him. They brought in uh, Stefan Robodos, who's older, right. has injury problems, he's off the board. Not all the off the board moves are going to work. But they brought these guys in. Daniel Winnick, that's another guy. A lot of off-the-board players they brought in. And these are the type of guys that can make a difference because, you know, you only have so many spots and so much money for your superstars, like Bill Kessel and all that. So it's really, it's really the bottom six where you can maneuver, where you can use money puck, where you can use analytics. And the Leafs were prepared to go off the board to make these moves. And I'm really excited about that. The one move that's a head-scratcher was a whole Gunnarsson for Pollock thing. Uh, that's one that I didn't understand, but, uh, you know, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Not all the moves are going to work. That might work, it might not work, but that is the one that confused me. But, uh, you know, I can't praise them for being off the board and then criticize one of their off-the-board moves. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll just let that one go for now. No, and that's fair. And Anthony, on the note that, that Rob just raised, were you aware, by the way, and I, you know, because I'm not as as close to this, Anthony, but that that Gunnarsson played here the last two or the last year with, the, I'm sorry, did I read he had a torn labrum? What what was his issue? Yeah, that's what he said for the last two years. I, I knew he was hurt. Well, uh, I think we all knew there was something. Yeah. Yeah. So he had issues. I didn't know the extent of it. No, I mean that's that. I mean, again, I'm a layman, as I say, but I mean, that sounds like a major injury that that'll take you out. So if you're playing through that, that might that might address some of the questions that some of us had about, you know, at times performance, right? Um, because I think a lot of us thought he was certainly a capable defenseman a few years ago. Not that he was, you know, terrible or something the last two years, but maybe not as good as he is had sometimes shown in the past. So that's interesting. Did you want to jump in because we're probably going to start winding down, Anthony? Did you want to ask any other? particularly pertinent Leaf-related questions of, of Rob while we still have him? Well, could, could I jump in and ask you guys some questions? Of course. I think uh, we lost. Anthony was maybe, I just, I don't know if he oh. was not disconnected. Oh, there he is, but he's, he's fading in and out. But you go ahead, Rob, and ask whatever, and, and we'll go from there. Well, I guess one of the questions I have is about uh, Bozak and Kadri. And in the analytics world, uh, we like Kadri, uh, you know, I, not to speak for the whole community, but the reason Kadri has an appeal to many of us is that his possession numbers are excellent, and he's one of the best penalty drawers in the entire NHL. He checks a lot of the money puck, you know, boxes. Whereas Tyler Bozak, I mean, he's a strong player. We all agree he's a good player and all that. But we feel that a lot of his numbers, I guess you can say, are being artificially, I guess you say, brought up by the percentages and by Phil Kessel. And so our argument has always been, how come the Maple Leafs seem to favor Bozak so much more than Kadri? How they seem to prefer, they put Bozak here and Kadri down here. And I guess my question for you is, how do you see Bozak compared to Kadri? Um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Anthony jump in. I, I, I think there are elements to Kadri's game. The one thing you noted, Rob, is that Kadri does draw a lot of opposition penalties. 
I refer to him as a cagey, edgy sort of player, which has nothing to do with statistics, I realize. Um, but he just seems to have, at, he has, and he has, everybody knows he has the great hands and, 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 and vision and all of that. Um, but Bozak also, I think Bozak's a, to me is a funny player. I'll let Anthony take it from here, but Bozak brings good things to the table as well. I'm not sure that either is a dominant kind of frontline center against a, if they were playing head to head against a really good, uh, line or, or center, but maybe I'm wrong. Anthony, you, you jump in because you, you can express this one be probably much better than I. Uh, Oh, where to start? Well, I like Kadri better than Bozak. Like, let's just get that out of the way with. Um, the kind of the argument I always make when people ask about, you know, Bozak or Kadri, who should center the first line, is because Kadri's better, and then, the, you know, on the second line, he's playing with Lupo or JVR or wingers in their own right that are not strong defensively. But because at least Kadri's a possession driver, he'll at least hide it a little bit, whereas Bozak will not. And it, just using the Buffalo game as an example, Kadri was with Kessel and Lupul, and they lit it up scoring chances. We tracked scoring chances at MLHS, and like, I think Kadri was like 13-1 for the game, and like Kessel was like 14-0 or something crazy like that on even, th even strength scoring chances. And Bozak with JVR and Clarkson was like two and two for the game, like even against Buffalo. So, you know, I get the Bozak Kadri question all the time is it, it's not because I don't think that Kadri's better than Bozak. Like, he clearly is. Like, I don't, if you just watch the games, I, I don't understand how you come to the conclusion otherwise, unless you're looking at just their point totals. But I think Bozak's going to get run over and have and he won't have the scoring to make up for it if he's not playing between Kestel and JVR or Lupul. And he scored against Buffalo, but it was a power play goal. So when you ask about those two, that's that's my read on the situation. I don't know what your thoughts are, Rob. Yeah, well, you know, my, my thoughts, like I said, is Kadri, you know, seems to be a lot more popular among analytics than he is among Sort of more mainstream fans, but it sounds like uh, it sounds like sounds like you agree uh, about Cadre being the better center. But it seems like you also agree that maybe that's a need for the Leafs is to actually go out and get like a legitimate argument over first line center, like uh, like the rumors not long ago that they should pick up Eric Stahl, which I think would hit the mark. Uh, the asking price is pretty high, but I think he would be a great fit uh, with Kessel on that top line. I just wonder if Stahl is is past his Honestly, best. Honestly, guys, talk about. Sorry, go ahead, Anthony. I was just saying. Honestly, I think just I wonder if Stahl is before his best before date. I just wonder because he's been hurt. He's he's played a lot of hockey in his years. But anyway, that's just me. I I don't disagree. I just like to me, you need to get a top six center that can actually play defense. So people talk about Eric, but I think if you put Jordan Stahl on the Leafs and now you have a matchup center, and honestly, whether it was Kadri or Bozak with Kessel on a separate line altogether, I think they'd be completely fine. And this kind of, it, it segues into, I guess, one of the, the last questions I had on, on the radio recently here. One Leaf assistant coach, Peter Horchek, was saying that there are no shutdown lines anymore 
that you, you need four lines and the onus is kind of on everyone and a somewhat shared responsibility. And then, strangely enough, another assistant coach on the Leafs, Steve Spott, went on the radio and started talking about Komarov and Winnick playing together on a shutdown line. And in your book, in Hockey Abstract, you talk about the Leafs forming a shutdown line. Do you think shutdown lines are dead? Do you think that they're necessary? Do you think it's just a composition thing with the way the Leafs are made? Because both of their top lines really can't play defense, and they're really just two strong scoring lines. What, what's sort of your opinion on the shutdown line? Well, call it what you want. But when, you're, when you've got a one-goal lead that you're protecting late in the game, and the opponent's throwing on Evgeny Malkin, or the opponent's throwing on Alex Ovechkin or Patrick Kane, and trying to get that goal. You're not just putting everyone's name into a hat and then picking out three, you know? You're not just taking all your lines and then just putting out the one that's fresh. You know, you're not, you know, you're not putting out, I don't know, Richard Panic, you know, to shut down Patrick Kane's line. So, you know, you're going to be putting out, you know, whatever you want to call it. You have to call it the shutdown line. And it is possible that you might want to construct your team so that they're all fairly even. Uh, so that none of them are particularly outstanding offensively or defensively. But when, when push comes to shove and your opponent's putting out Malkin or Vechkin or Kane, you need to have three individuals that play together as a line that can come out and shut them down. And that's something that a lot of teams have, but that's one thing that I think the Toronto Maple Leafs have always struggled to put together, and it was one of the challenges this season. Uh, you mentioned uh, Winnick. I think that was a great pickup because he is the type of player – that can serve in that role. He certainly did an Anaheim play with Cogliano and Koivu. That was one of the better shutdown lines. Once they were the shutdown lines, that allowed Perry and Getzlaff to become more of a scoring line. And that's really when they started winning Hart Trophies and Art Rosses uh, was when that sh shutdown line came together. So I think Winnick is a good ingredient. Komarov has potential. But, you know, there still is a ways to go before you're up there with, say, you know, you look at Pittsburgh uh, when they played against the Boston Bruins in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and they're completely shut down. Their scoring lines were completely shut down by Patrice Bergeron and his elite uh, defensive line. And uh, I think that, you know, so Pittsburgh's problem there was having a secondary scoring threat, uh, but Toronto's problem is not even having that shutdown line to begin with. And that's a challenge. Now, I don't think having four even lines is going to do the trick. Uh, because that's not what opponents are throwing at you. So I, I guess I disagree with uh, with Peter Harcheck. I think that you do need to have whatever you call it. I think you need to have uh, a line that you can put out there uh, to shut them down. And I think while that's one of the challenges in the world of hockey analytics, uh, I think that there are there is information we can present that can help identify which players are going to be more successful in those roles than others. I, I think, guys, I'm looking at the at the at the time, and we should probably wind things down. The last last comment I'll just make, and I I I really I've enjoyed this so much, Rob, and I appreciate your coming on. I don't know, we were both looking forward to it very much. I was just going to say back to very quickly the Bozak Kadri commentary. Even if if one feels, Rob, that that say Kadri is the better player, the better center. Would you, last question for me. That doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that he is the right guy to play on your top line. Is it? Or is it not? Because it, what if, and I'm just saying this, and this is not to get into debate with anybody, what if the coaches do genuinely feel that Bozak is the right fit with, for example, Van Riemsdyk and, and Kessel 
for reasons of chemistry, even if Kadri is is in many ways a, a better all-around center than Bozak. I mean, the coaches they they must they must look at the whole picture, right, and say, okay, we got to figure out four lines here, and and you know maybe Kadri will do a better job playing with Lupul or and whomever. And I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. Like better does not like Sundin was never going to when he was in Toronto, right? The problem we always complain about as Leaf fans was got to find guys to play with him, right? We had the elite center, didn't appreciate him for 10 years, wish we had him now, right? Because all we do is complain and moan about the fact we don't have a frontline center. We had one for years and we're never satisfied. So um, anyway, I'm just throwing that out as sort of a final thing. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but you're, maybe your best guy in this case doesn't play necessarily on your front line for reasons of balance. I, does, is, that, is that possible? Well, I mean, playing with Kessel, playing on the top line means playing a lot more. And so I, I just, while, while you mentioned that, I pulled up the latest numbers. So Bozak gets several more minutes per game than Kadri. And that's one of the problems here. Like if you had two top lines, one of them was power versus power, yes. right? Like Jonathan Tate's line. And the other one was, I'm just going to go out there and score, like say the Patrick King line in Chicago. They both get the same amount of time, but they have different roles. And so one of them would get to play with Kane and one of them gets to play with Tace. Now that's fine, but that's not the case in Toronto. You basically right. have that one big line, which is Phil Kessel. And if you're not on that line, then it's not you have like a one and two line. You have a one line, and the two line yeah. is very much a two line. So I think... I see what you mean. It's, there's no one and one A. I want yep. to see those two lines being used equally, you know, and you could split them up any way you wanted to. Right. You could put Bozak here, Kadri there, as long as they were, you know, used e equally like that. But that's not the case on the Leafs. Phil Kessel is the star, right? More so than anyone else. And it would be foolish, quite frankly, to like decrease Kessel's ice time just so that another guy could get that. That would be foolish, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I got listen, one more question. I yeah, go for it, Anthony. Go for. After. Yep. And this kind of blends in with everything we were talking about, and you just wrote a recent article about this for ESPN, and it's in Hockey Abstract, which I have read. Um, you talk about coaches, and they don't really, A, change your overall possession results that much, and in the book, it's something like you studied, or you quoted a study that um, looked at like 41 coaching changes, and the point differential is only like 1.5 points. And I guess I'll make a quick point before I throw it over to you. Um, you know, like one of the things we talk about coaches sometimes is a bit of, you know, miracle workers. And you take the Leafs for Boston for, you know, as an example. At the end of the day, Claude Julien on his bench has Patrice Bergeron centering one line and David Krejci centering another line. And Randy Carlyle has Tyler Bozak centering one of his top lines and Nazem Kadri. So, you know, really at the end of the day, doesn't matter if it's Scotty Bowman or Mike Babcock or whoever else coaching that leaf line. When those are your top two centers and you're going up against those two top centers, it, it's going to be tough to win no matter what coaching voodoo you think can do. Um, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you think coaching isn't, yeah, I don't want to say the be-all and end-all, but maybe not the difference maker that people think it is. The quick answer is, uh, is parity. When I first started looking at hockey analytics around coaches, when I first started coming up with stats to study coaches, I expected to find big gaps between top coaches and bottom coaches with lots of space in between. Instead, I found out, yeah, there's a couple of coaches 
that are truly exceptional, like the famous Scotty Bowman. And there's a and sure there's a few coaches every year that really weren't meant to be NHL level coaches. But by and large, there's a lot of parity among the NHL coaches. And switching from one coach to another is not going to have the massive difference that a lot of people coaches are in either either extreme care, uh, category. There's a lot of parity among coaches. The only way a coaching change is really going to have a difference is when you've changed the way the players are being used. And indeed, a few years ago, I was actually talking with an NHL team uh, that was that made a coaching change because they wanted to look at some player usage charts to figure out whether their players are being used in the most efficient manner. Now, let me tell you, in most cases around the league, at least 25 cases in the league, the coaches have already optimized the lineup. There may be some tweaks, but basically the lineups have already been optimized. And it's only in extreme situations you'll have different results. I'll just give you one quick example. Last year when you saw Vancouver and the Rangers switch coaches, Alain Vigneault is a very, very specific type of player usage. And Tortorella, I guess, is a bit more traditional or mainstream. So going from Tortorella to Vigneault and vice versa can have very dramatic results. And that's what we saw. One team made the Stanley Cup Finals. The other team had a very disappointing season. And so, but with the exception of extreme player usage changes like Tortorella versus Vigneault, you're not going to get a huge difference when changing from one coach to another. Not because coaching doesn't matter, but because NHL coaches really, really know their stuff. And the odds that your coach isn't awesome, it's pretty, it's pretty small. It's like the saying goes, right? A, a good you know, a good coach doesn't win you, or might win you a game or two, but a bad coach will really tank you. And most of these coaches are at the very least pretty good. So there's not a big aggregate and, and difference. So, so listen, um, Rob, I just we want to thank you, both Anthony and I. Um, Rob, author of Hockey Abstract and, and one of the, the true pioneers and, and gurus of the of the hockey analytics world. Rob, thank you for joining us. We're going to cut you loose, and then Anthony and I will just wrap up the show. But first of all, thank you for being here, for uh, your patience with some of my questions, which weren't too statistically oriented, but Anthony had some great stuff. Uh, and we appreciate, hope you'll take the time to come back and join us again sometime, and we appreciated your insights, not only about the Leafs, but, but uh, about hockey across the board. And uh, Love some of your references to, to Bobby Clark and some of the old guys, too. That was great. Thank you, Rob. Oh, it was my pleasure to be hey, here. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob, for people listening, uh, where can they get the book? Yeah, good question. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, well, uh, I just have, happen to have a copy right here. Go for it. <laughs> Rob Wolvitz, Hockey Abstract. This is the 2014 edition. There's also uh, the 2013 edition. They're completely different. They're all new material. Um, it's not an annual guidebook. This is, you mentioned Bill James earlier. This is meant to be what Bill James did for baseball. It's meant to show you how the statistics can be used. Not, it's not an annual guidebook or whatever. It's, it's meant to show you how they're going to be used. So it should be able to stay in your shelf for years to come, just like uh, Baseball Abstract. If you're a baseball fan, it's got a glossary of what all the different stats mean, what the formulas are. Uh, it's got 150 footnotes to all the latest studies that are out there, including ones written by Cam Sharon, Daryl Metcalf, and Rob Pettipis, the three guys hired by the Leafs. This is before they were hired, right? And uh, if you want it, it's on Amazon. 
you could order. It was the number one best-selling hockey book for for about a month or two in August and September. Uh, you can still get the old book on Amazon as well. Uh, if you just want the PDF version, you can go to hockeyabstract.com, and there's a link where you can actually read book reviews and download it there. And uh, you know, it's it's it was a labor of love, and it was really uh, a pleasure to have this. Um, uh, you know, out there and available, and I really appreciate everyone who uh, who helped me put this together. Well, and and continued best wishes with that. Uh, great stuff, obviously, Rob, and and it was good of you to be on the program tonight. We hope you sell uh, a, a lot more copies. It, as I said, it's fabulous stuff, and and you're you're one of the guys who's obviously made the analytics movement what it is now, and it's good to see. NHL teams catching up to the curve, as it were, and, and thanks for your involvement and for joining us on the program tonight. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next time. Yeah, for sure. So, listen, Anthony, we'll wrap up and just say, what are you looking for the next couple of games? A quick thought. I mean, we're in Columbus tomorrow night, home against Chicago, who's got three goalies who can win games. Um, so that's what it looks like to me. The, the Hawks have different guys who can play in goal. Um, what are we looking at? Columbus and then Chicago. What have we got going on there? I guess the big thing I'll be looking for is if the Kadri line stays intact with Kessel and Lupul. Uh, yes, they look great. Yes, Buffalo might be the worst team in the modern era. Um, and then continuing on that point, if they do continue to look great, are they going to start getting power play time as a unit on the top unit? Because they were amazing 5-on-5 five five against Buffalo, but when power play time rolled around, it was JVR and Bozak back with Kessel. Right. Well, and you'd obviously prefer to see Kadri and Lupul stay out there. That's what you're saying, right? I'm not sure. I think I think JVR is very good in front of the net. Uh, I think Lupul is too. Um, it would be hard for me to pick between one of those two. I think Kadri adds the the slot dynamic needs when he half ball on the lot for the one timer that Bozak simply can't out of handedness alone. Uh, and I think teams have have caught on that you just need to pressure Kessel on the half wall to shut down the power play. So he kind of needs that that option there. And to a degree, I think Lupo might be better down low because uh, Kessel can pass it outwards to him and, and Lupo can receive it, whereas JVR couldn't. He would be receiving the puck on his backhand. Uh, right, I hear you. Uh, last thing, uh, you satisfied with the goaltending so far? Bernie and Reimer, are you happy with what we're getting there? Uh, no, uh, I think uh, I was looking at their save percentage um, at even strength today, actually, and, and they're like middle pack in the league. Uh, so it's not, a, not enough yet. No, I, I think that that should be a top 10 goaltending tandem, in my opinion, and it's not there yet, and, and Bernie has had a bit of a weak start, um, but it'll get there. It's just the kind of ebbs and flows like we were talking about earlier with Rob of the season. It's just it's just yeah. kind of the way it is. And, and, and especially for the goal yeah, especially for the goalies, it's very early. I mean you gotta get some some traction and they gotta get the season going, gotta get a lot of starts in against real opposition and stuff. So listen, Anthony, that, that was that was excellent. It was great to have Rob Volman on as as a guest. Good to connect with you. Our our season two episode one. Uh, the Leafs are what five hundred, and uh, it wouldn't shock anybody if that continued for a while, but who knows? Uh, you know you know better days may be ahead. And on the other hand <laughs> we'll we'll see uh, we'll see where things where things are so listen let's wrap it up for for the first episode of, of for us for the new year so for Anthony Petrielli from the Maple Leaf Hot Stove this is Michael Langlois from Vintage Leaf Memory saying thanks for joining us we'll catch you all next time good night everybody take care and good night Anthony take care and be well <laughs>